Hello, everyone. Welcome to the We Are Children's Division podcast. I am Daryl Missy, the director of Children's Division. And as always, I am here with our communications guru uh, and podcast producer, Ashton Kiever. Ashton, how are you today? Doing great, Daryl. How are you? I'm just I'm just great. I'm excited about our topic today because today we're going to be uh, talking about mental health uh, with us from our uh, from our agency is Danielle Corley, our deputy director of uh, prevention. Danielle, how are you today? I'm doing well. All right. Well, it's great. It's always great to be on with you. And so we're going to think we're going to have a great discussion because today our guest is Rachel Jones, who's the director of Tra- director of trauma services at the uh, Department of Mental Health. Uh, so, Rachel, thank you for coming and being with us today. Hey, thank you all for inviting me to this podcast. Well, we're just we're just thrilled to have you. And, you know, we've we've got a lot of the we've got we operate in a lot of the same space, have a lot of the same folks that we're trying to serve and help. And so I think these conversations are very, very uh, important and useful. So thank you, Rachel, for talking with us today. So why don't you introduce yourself to us? Why don't you tell us uh, how you got to be uh, the director of director of trauma services at the Department of Mental Health? How'd you get where you are? Okay, well, my background is I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I worked with one of our DMH contracted agencies for about 11 years. So I was going into people's homes. I was coordinating with Children's Division as well as Behavioral Health and many other players and got a lot of that, you know, direct care experience early on in my career. So I did that for a little over a decade, and then I eventually moved into um, a director role in that organization. So then I was over several different counties and our youth and family programming and really helping them connect to their local circuits, their local children's divisions, schools, juvenile courts, all of the big players. And then after I left that organization, I came to DMH. I started in the Division of Behavioral Health, which for your listeners, if they're not familiar, DMH has two divisions. Behavioral Health is our mental illness and substance use side of the house. And Developmental Disabilities is our intellectual and developmental disability side of the house. So when I first came to DMH, I was the manager of trauma-informed treatment with the Division of Behavioral Health. And now I'm in the director of trauma services role and it's through the director's office program and it's much more broad across our whole department. And a lot of the work that I still do in trauma centers in the child and family space because as we know, uh, earliest prevention of trauma happens early in a child's life. So I always kind of keep a hand in the world of working with children and at-risk families. So. That's what brings me here to DMH and here to this podcast with y'all today. <laughs> so, Rachel, it just sounds like you 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 completely overlap what we're uh, you know what we're addressing here, and because you know I I, I say all the time you know with, that if we if, if you're dealing with both mental illness and substance abuse, well, you're, you're that's two of the big three with regard to the things that we end up seeing. The other being poverty, which by the way is often fueled by the first two, right? So they, 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 they go together so much. So, so why don't you talk with us a little bit about how you see us overlapping, how you see your work and our work overlapping and, and how we can do things together. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, what I say is everybody's got mental health. So to start, if you have a brain, you've got mental health. So mental health is definitely my business. It's my training. 
but it's everyone's business. And so finding ways to make connections to mental health with state agencies that are working with at-risk populations, that seems like the logical thing that we should all be doing. You mentioned poverty also being a part of it. And when we are public health systems, we're often working with people who don't have very many resources. And so in many ways, we're serving the same families, the same communities, the same pockets. We're just coming at it maybe from a little bit of a different angle. So I'd say the overlap for me, because um, my area is in trauma, is around the adverse childhood experiences. So, you know, in mental health, we look at that data from the ACEs study. And I know a lot of people in child welfare also understand the ACEs study, where, you know, if children are exposed to early childhood adversities under the age of 18, they're gonna have greater likelihood of developing mental illness, substance use disorders, developmental delays, suicide, addiction, overdose, premature death in a lot of areas, as well as chronic health problems, legal problems, domestic violence issues, poverty. Um, so when we're over in mental health trying to decrease people's trauma exposure, prevent people from developing mental illness and substance use addictions, prevent families from being separated and disjointed, prevent intergenerational trauma exposure. Uh, that to me sounds exactly like what Children's Division is also trying to do. Your, the things you're doing, the services you provide are slightly different than the services we provide, but our common goals seem to be very aligned. And I think that's where the biggest overlap in my mind is between our two departments. Well, and Rachel, you said the word prevent like about seven times there, and you know we have we've been we've been working to shift uh, our, our our both our philosophy and our practice from this sort of reactive reactive almost punitive approach to this whole thing to being a proactive you know approach that's driven by what the evidence is by what we hope can be uh, rather than what we fear might be you know and and so. Uh, Danielle, this is in this is in your wheelhouse, right? We're talking prevention. I mean, how do you how do you see that working in with the stuff that we're doing here at Children's Division? Well, I was just thinking. I sent something over to um, the Family Support Division to get a contact to start doing some better collaboration with them, and I probably really need to get with Rachel after this to have more conversation about this because almost every well every single piece of what you just said connects to. Where we're headed, you know, we're always going to have the, the hotline, the foster care, the, uh, you know, that ongoing piece, because there's definitely a need for it. But uh, the prevention space that we've been able to walk into this year, uh, it, a, it's super exciting and, and good for families based on what we know. Um, and so every piece of what you're talking about is uh, something that we need to connect further on is after this podcast. So. Yeah, I think in my world too, when I think of prevention, I think of it in two ways. The traditional prevention is way before anybody even needs the service, right? So it's really focused on mental health literacy, trauma literacy, well-being, making sure families have the resources they need to thrive. But when people do need access to treatment, because that's another part of our mission at the department, is we provide treatment and care. Even in treatment, you are doing prevention. When you're treating families, you are preventing other members of the family from developing 
the same chronic issues and passing across that intergenerational trauma or addiction or illness or any chronic health problem. And so it's it's like two types of prevention happening, even when you're actually doing the intervention. Uh, you know, and the, the name of the game is really to try to get families as healthy as possible and give them a plan for, hey, we know that these adversities might be just around the corner for you. What are some ways that you can move around that? You can move through it. You can stop it before it happens. And, you know, sometimes that's actually happening in treatment that we're talking prevention. So, yeah, I think uh, in our society, we simply don't look at prevention as where you should put your dollars. But the research does show you have a higher rate return on investment when you do the prevention work rather than when you're doing the, the intervention work. So I think we've got a lot to still adjust for our state. Yeah, the one piece that we added um, when we think about our focus is healthy communities too. So we're just trying to make sure we know that people feel more comfortable in their communities than they do with government agencies. And so seeing if there are spaces where we can fit in and help um, along the community with alongside the community partners who are already doing the work. That's a that's a big piece for us. We don't want to recreate this. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. We don't want to we're not the experts on it. Hopefully one day we'll be a whole lot more knowledgeable about it, but um, we know there are people doing really good work out there already. And so um, just coming along the communities to people access where they live. Yeah. Well, and you know, Rachel, when you're talking about prevention, it sounds to me like when you're saying we're treating one thing, what we're doing is preventing the next thing. Uh, preventing the next step that comes if we don't do this thing now, if we don't provide this treatment now, if we don't get on this issue in this space, we're going to be dealing with a different issue after. And, you know, you talked about the impacts of trauma. I mean, I, when you read the studies on the impacts of foster care, you know, all the things that you said are, are ACEs things that they say that they're actual, actual uh, impacts that we have when kids go into foster care. You know, I mean, just the, the act of removal and taking them over there and putting them someplace else is one of those aces. You know, we're adding one. We're adding another, uh, you know, another adverse childhood experience uh, to their already large list of adverse childhood experiences. And it, it has impact. You know, you're more likely to have trauma. You're more likely to have mental illness. You're more likely to have addiction. You're more likely to go to prison if you've been in foster care than if you're a similarly situated children who wasn't in foster care. So, I mean, you're doing that work out there uh, that, that, prevents us from having to take that step, it's a powerful thing and very yeah. helpful to us. So so just thank you for, for doing that. And we talk about us working together. So in what context would that happen? I mean, are our folks out in the field uh, when they're working with the Department of Mental, you know, when they're working with mental health professionals, are they really going to be working with DMH? Are they going to be working with people who work with DMH? Are they going to be working with local uh, folks? Where will we connect with each other? That's a great question because it does get confusing, doesn't it? Um, for the most part, the folks working in your circuits and through your child welfare offices are going to be working with a contracted provider with DMH. So we have a map on our website that shows each county and who your contracted provider is that serves that entire county. And so those are the people that your local folks need to have ongoing relationships with. Know what the phone numbers are, know who the people are, what the email address is, what the website is, so that they can quickly access the information that they need once a family comes into their care and they are now trying to help coordinate services. 
Now, if a child has developmental disability and we're trying and and the children's division worker is trying to get them access to DD services through DMH, they have to go through the application process and the waiver process. So it's a little bit different for that population. Your local folks are needing to go through our regional offices through DMH. So on the behavioral health side, if it's a substance use or mental illness, they're working with our contracted providers first. On the DD side, the entry point is through our regional offices so that they can start the application process, figure out if that child or family has had DD services before, and that kind of kicks off what they're eligible for, what Medicaid will cover, and then kind of moves them into that system. So it sounds like you know we're we're working on on creating a prevention force. We've got uh, we've got some of those people started, but it, in theory, at some point, those people are going to be experts on all of those things that you just said, right? They're going to have the relationships with the people locally that you make the you know you 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 attach those people to, and you you get people into their space, right? So uh, probably per, you know personal and local relationships are going to be a big deal as part of this as we go forward. Absolutely, they should be. And I think with any cross department collaboration, I know all the cases that I worked on with kids when children's division was at the table with me and I knew who they were and we had a direct line of communication, those cases just, they went better. Families were able to stay together. They were able to reunify quicker. You were able to stabilize people. So it is all based in relationship. Now, one thing that is new for the, for the Department of Mental Health is our youth behavioral health liaisons, which actually can make it even easier for children's division workers to connect to the, what we call yibbles. They don't always like that. Yeah, I, I, I've said yibble in front of them and it sounds like, it sounds like a, it sounds like a cute cartoon character, a yibble, you know, it sounds like they ought to have some fur and a, a, a horn for a nose, a yibble, you know, is that, is that, Cubert, that was Cubert, not a Yibble, but uh, and then Star Trek had triples, so Yibbles rhymes with triples, and uh, it's really it, it's a great name. I don't know why they don't like it, Rachel. A Yibble, I mean, it sounds like they ought to have a mascot. They ought to have, uh, you know, it's it's really great. So why don't you explain to us what a Yibble is? And and because I think you know we've been talking in in uh, big broad department kind of meetings talking about these kids who are in hospitals and in our office floors and kids who are not able to stay in residential treatment and all the all the issues that go with that everybody's talking about the yibbles or the or you know are a big part of solving a lot of this why don't you tell us what a what a yibble really is youth behavioral health liaisons are a version of getting a liaison in place who can help families get access to the service so in the adult world, we've had behavioral health liaisons working side by side with law enforcement for many years as a way to divert people from jails and hospitals if they don't need to be hospitalized, but maybe just need to get access to ongoing behavioral health care. So you have a liaison who works side by side with them to help connect those people to the appropriate service they need instead of moving them through a couple other systems that maybe aren't going to meet the need and possibly make things worse. On the youth side, these are called youth behavioral health liaisons. So uh, they're scattered all throughout the state. They, again, they're hired through our contracted providers on our behavioral health side. And Yibbles will 
connect with families and get them engaged and stay engaged until that family actually gets established in care. So people who are from children's division, schools, hospitals, juvenile courts can refer to youth behavioral health liaisons. And it's a way to connect families. Let me give you a quick example of one that I got pulled into recently that I think is just a really great way of demonstrating how this can work. There was a family that was in a hospital in the central part of the state. Quite a bit of trauma, there were four children involved and there was a caregiver who had to relocate to the eastern part of the state, kind of northeast part of the state to get closer to family and they needed to be able to establish care for four children plus an adult. So the hospital was able to connect to the youth behavioral health liaison that served that northeast area so that you had a quicker, easier transition so that that caregiver wasn't trying to figure all that out on their own in a new town after a hospitalization and a major family trauma. So it's that's how a youth behavioral health liaison can connect with them, can say, here are the resources that'll be available. Which of these sound interesting to you? Let's figure out what your insurance covers. And they can kind of be a soft handoff and be an engagement partner. You know, unfortunately, it can take time for people to get established with behavioral health providers. We know that there's issues with wait lists, there's issues with workforce shortage, and frankly, sometimes families are not ready for treatment, even though their treatment team says you need treatment. So for a lot of reasons, there can be a delay between the time that someone is referred and someone actually starts treatment. A youth behavioral health liaison can help fill that gap because they can stay connected to the family. They can be the person who's answering their questions, helping them navigate, helping them make decisions that they need to make about behavioral health, sharing the options, and then getting them into the service. So I hope that's a good enough explanation of youth behavioral health liaisons, and we really encourage people to start using them. Um, what we've seen on the adult side is it was a game changer. It diverts so many people from the wrong systems and the wrong services and gets them into the right size at the right time, if you will. And so now we have that option for youth and families. So we're all, will our YIPLs uh, only be dealing with, you know, child mental health issues? Or if we find out an issue that it, it exists in a family, uh, and we've got a kid who's dealing with a parent with a mental health issue. I mean, do they deal with that too, or is or how, how does or or would we have to find the 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 adult version of this to get people to, or what would we do in that instance? Yeah, that's a great question. The youth behavioral health liaison will be able to assist to figure out what the adults need. So that might be them connecting with the adult behavioral health liaison, letting them know what the adult services are. They are really designed to help the youth get access to care. But many people who work in family-based services in mental health understand that when we're serving youth, we are often serving at least one adult, sometimes more. Right. And that the adult needs access to the care too, especially if you wanna do anything lasting and sustainable with a youth, is they are reliant on the adults in their life. So we need to also help adults. So those youth behavioral health liaisons will have access to family-based programming, will know how to connect adults to adult service. And that's one of the beauties of our DMH system is that we serve children, youth, 
transitional age youth, adults across the lifespan. So we can help people get access to, you know, whole family treatment if that's what they need. Well, and that keeps us out of the out of the silos, right? It keeps us from trying to figure out which silo people are in. If, if somebody can come in and say, "Okay, uh, we 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 work with this family together as a whole thing," because we've my, my I, I was a judge for a long time, and I, I sat on the bench and heard watched people all point at each other as to whose kid this was. No, this is a this is a children's division kid. This is a mental health kid. This is a a a, a, a you know division of youth services kid, and 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 everybody trying. It's an education problem. And the reality of it is, is it's all of those things. You know, if we knew everything about their life, it's all of those things. And if we're working together and finding stuff uh, that we can help them with, I, I think that we again prevent them from getting into the wrong system. I mean, we've got we've got uh, you know twelve thousand five hundred ninety nine kids in foster care, and no and no reasonable analysis of Missouri or its situation says it ought to be that high. But there we are, and mm -hmm. so you know uh, a lot again. Poverty, addiction, mental illness, right? So, uh, you know, so how often, I mean, you've experienced this, you've been watching it. I I've been watching it uh, in different contexts. I mean, what do you think about, you know, the, the frequency with which it's the parental mental health that's causing our kids to come into care? I mean, is, is that a thing or is, or, how, and how do we, and how do we address it if it is? And what I would say is mental health and and parental substance use are so closely connected to each right. other. A lot of the research is actually showing that it's parental substance use that is bringing a lot of kids into the custody of the state. No and doubt. parental substance use is often a coping mechanism and an addiction issue that is trying to cope with some mental health concerns and some trauma exposure. So um, there, there is some pretty compelling and interesting data that's come out. I was recently looking at the American Psychological Association. They did some um, data pool over 17 years uh, from 2020 to 2017. They used the Administration for Children and Families um, stats but basically, and bear with me, y'all, I'm going to spit out some statistics so this can get boring and annoying, but I think it might put things into perspective for us. So um, over that 17-year period, the number of children entering foster care because of parental substance use rose from 15% in 2000 to 36% by 2017. And now it's at 39% as of 2020. So 39% of the cases brought in are because of parental substance use. And when we look at just that 39%, they splice that up on age of child. And 60% of those cases were five years old and younger. So birth to five, 60% of those cases were kids that were babies, toddlers, or about to start kindergarten. And then um, there's a website, which you all probably use, the National Center of Substance Abuse and Child Welfare. They have a lot of great stats and resource documents for people, really trying to figure out how do we merge substance use and welfare together in states. But they did kind of a, a map across the US to look at what some averages are nationally. And then they've got different state data to compare to the national average. 
So what it was showing was, you know, that national average of children being brought into care because of parental substance use was 39%. And it looked like Missouri's removal was between 41 and 50%. So we're a little higher than the national average in our state. And that national average of children under the age of one, so babies being brought into care because of parental substance use was 50% at the national average. And the Missouri data showed that it was a little over 60%. So to me, seeing this picture of, okay, you've got almost 40% of kids being brought into care, it's because of substance use. So it, we need to be asking some questions and trying to think creatively about how we address this. So as someone who sits in the behavioral health world and is a licensed provider, uh, has a little bit of background in women's and children's substance use treatment, I, there's some questions for me. So the first one is, when we look at parental substance use, are we looking at it with a trauma-informed lens? Are we using addiction science and trauma science to understand why is a parent using? And what's going on besides they just won't change? They just aren't strong enough to stop using. They, you know, addiction science tells us there's something else going on with the brain. And when that drug hits the dopamine center, it causes this actual addiction where the body is craving it. So do we need to change our conversations about that? Um, also, you know, looking at trauma science and the connection with addiction, a lot of times people are using to cope with trauma. Maybe that is past trauma, but many times it can actually be existing current trauma too. And when they use, it also increases the likelihood of experiencing even more trauma. So it's a very bi-directional relationship. Another thing for us to think about with our state, when we know birth to five years old is this really huge section of kids being brought into care, you know, about 90% of the brain develops between birth and five. So that's a very critical time in a person's life for brain, social, emotional, and physical development. So are there ways that we can connect to, you know, healthcare providers that specialize in labor, delivery, and postpartum? Are we using an, you know, an integrated approach to physical healthcare, uh, postpartum healthcare, behavioral healthcare, child welfare, social services? Or are those places still kind of siloed out, operating in their own area of expertise, but not really connecting all the dots together for families? You know, it begs us to try to figure out if a mother has had a baby and within the first year of the baby's life is continuing to use substances, is there something with postpartum depression, anxiety, violence exposure, you know, stuff that we also need to be trying to figure out? And who are the other players that maybe need to join us at the table to figure that out? And um, the other thing that I would say for me is the role of fathers and fatherhood. How many of them are being brought into treatment plans? How many of them have the skills they need to step in and also assist with young children especially? What addiction, behavioral health, employment, social service supports do fathers need? Because there's a lot of really interesting research that shows that when fathers are involved, 
you know, you see higher reading and math scores. Kids learn better social emotional skills, self-regulation skills. So there is power for, you know, having parents who are healthy and well and able to connect and be present for kids. And I think in a lot of ways, fathers kind of get pushed to the side of the conversation because a lot of cases it's mothers or grandmothers who are presenting kids into our systems of care. So I think there's, you know, the data showing us this high rate of substance use and kids being brought into care can really help us change some conversation around things. But I don't know, that's my opinion. What do you all think about that? Well, Danielle, what do you think about that? No, uh, here, here's what I'll tell you. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there, Rachel. And, and here's, here, here are my, my, my thoughts. First of all, when you're talking about, you know, maternal mental illness in young kids and postpartum, uh, and the involvement of dads, that, that, that trifecta right there really hits home with me because, you know, my personal story is, is that I, my mom had severe, met, severe bipolar disorder. I mean, the real deal kind of bipolar disorder, you know, she was a wonderful mom, amazing woman, write a book about her. Maybe I will, uh, but she is, she was amazing. But, uh, you, you know, if, if you've seen the, the, the movie, of a beautiful mind, my, my mom was, my mom was that kind of John Nash kind of genius. Um, I'm not mentally well person. Right? I mean, that's, that's who she was capable of being when the meds weren't right and everything else. My dad, who was a, just a salt of the earth factory worker guy, loved his family, loved his kids remarkably. He made everything work you know, because he, he was there when she couldn't be, and he was helping her and supporting her in a way. And it's just, you know, I, I think about, you know, knowing now the tie between mental illness and substances. Oh, my goodness. If my mother had had, you know, discovered substances, what a mess we would have had and how terrible it would have been. But you could see just to calm your brain what you would do. And, and uh, you know, so, uh, you know, so the question that so that's that's one thing, but the other question you bring up that I think really strikes at home strikes home with regard to me and and watching what I saw on the in, on the bench when I was in court was the just the number of people who are using drugs that we don't know about. I mean, it's like it's only the people we know about. I realized that when I had my felony criminal docket, and I got you know I got fifty people on my felony criminal docket this morning, and everything is substance use, and everybody's children are either living with them or they're living with them and their mom, which means to say when I'm not doing well, they're living with they're living with grandma, right? And it's like the question, and I did a lot of treatment court work, you know. So the question is, is what is the proper response to drug use. I mean, in some in some areas and you talk to people, if there's evidence of drug use, there is a removal. Uh, and and so you got child trauma, you've got an addict has trauma, they've already had some kind of trauma. Uh, and so so what do you think? Uh, do do we take first and ask questions or do we ask questions to see if we have to remove? I mean, I guess that's the question. Rachel, and your experience with regard to these folks is what what can we what can we offer? What can we do for people? I think the the biggest point about all this is it's a very complex issue that does not have an easy solution, nor can you apply one solution to one family that's going to work for the next family. So we do need to just keep in mind that what we're dealing with here are wicked social problems. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things that would need to align. And we care about safety, 
right? And using a trauma-informed lens, safety and connection and trust are the foundations of being able to do any meaningful work with people. And so it is hard, and I would never want to have to be the judge on the bench making the decision, because it's a very difficult decision to make. There are briefs, policies, guidance. The American Bar Association's got a really great document that kind of pulls together all of the risks and the potential negative outcomes of youth that are brought into care. But, you know, in terms of do we take first uh, and and then ask questions, or do we ask questions and then take? I think when you are doing that trauma-informed community work, like what you all talked about early in this podcast, of having the people on the streets locally that know the community, being a part of the conversation, you glean a lot of information about uh, the tone, the shape, the risk, the protective factors of the community that can help people make a decision about, hey, what, what if we tried this harm reduction approach first? And then if that doesn't work, we step it up to the next more restrictive approach. So I think in terms of trying to figure out which one do you do, you know, a lot of the harm reduction research shows us that you wanna have some steps. You wanna try to start with least restrictive options and then if that doesn't feel right, you move up the rung to the next more restrictive option and then keep going until you have the most restrictive. What a lot of people have done is jump straight to most restrictive without trying any of those other options that might have stabilized people, prevented additional trauma, kept everyone safe. And so I'm, I don't have a direct answer for do we do it this way or that way? But I think trying to use a trauma lens and use a harm reduction approach can be very effective. This reminds me of one of the pilots that we've got going on in um, the southern part of the state with Lafayette House. It's one of our women's and children's substance use treatment providers. And basically we've been doing a pilot now for almost three years where if a woman has a substance use problem and has an infant, the infant and the woman can be placed in treatment together to try to help the, the mother get access to care and learn how to connect with the baby, helps the baby establish a secure attachment with a caregiver, healthy emotional well-being. You have a treatment team of people watching it, monitoring it, coordinating with child welfare as a way to try to say, maybe for this case, we can keep these two together and they can go to treatment together instead of take the kid and the mom does treatment and then later, hopefully we can pull that back together. You know, and so in that circuit, we've, we've learned a lot of valuable lessons and we're always looking to expand that to other parts of the state, other other circuits that might be interested in trying that harm reduction approach, but it's basically trying to coordinate with your local women's and children's programs um, to say, here's an option. And is this a least restrictive option that we could try first? Not all the cases will be referred to that, but some of them will. And we've had some great, great outcomes um, from people who are able to get clean and sober 
they're able to establish and stay sober. They're able to connect with their baby and other children. Going back to what we talked about earlier, sometimes you're also dealing with a parent who's got more than one child at home. So what they learn in treatment with this one kid, they can generally apply for the other kids and prevent potential trauma and adversity for them. So I think a harm reduction approach is, is something we probably need to continue talking about, learning what different circuits are doing, what is successful so they can share with one another what's working in their area and, and see where that takes us. Well, Rachel, I appreciate I appreciate you doing you know saying all that because you know I mean I, I've been I mean it's been it's been my point of view from the beginning of of me being here and over the years on the bench, but it's great to hear somebody who like actually knows what they're talking about and has the studies and has done the work to 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 voice that because I think it fits with with the medical analogy that that I've been making. You know, it's like not every illness do you immediately jump to surgery and hospitalization because surgery and hospitalization might be worse than what you're trying to cure and you need to do some testing first and you need to if if it's not an if it's not an imminent emergent problem today meaning to say that you know there's not you know violence and mayhem and all that if it's one of those chronic this has been going on for a while you know it is it makes a whole lot more sense to have a team decision making meeting uh, to get together around that family say what are your resources what can we bring to bear on this what services are available in your community uh, how can we get people to the mental health treatment they need to the to the to the substance abuse treatment that they need and to the services that they need in order to be able to hold it all together and have them do that because you know the scenario you just talked about I, I used to handle a family treatment court and you know to a person and and those are i mean i still think the i mean i really do think the world of a lot of the people who came through that that system the the strength and the tenacity and the love that they demonstrate for their kids in the course of doing all that man we could have avoided all that trauma if they'd have had a program like what you just described and they would tell you that when when we took their child from them we did not help their sobriety uh, not one bit. That was that was like a giant, a, a, a giant new trauma on top of all the other trauma, uh, and it, it it did not help them. So thinking in terms of what can we do to help that exists in the realm of safety is it it's it's an important approach. I think. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, you know it does impact the parents' substance use because. Parental stress is one of the reasons people use this idea that I do not have the competent skill set to raise my kids. I may not get them back. I feel hopeless. I'm worthless, you know, and it goes on and on. Some of the things that they say to themselves about themselves. And if substance use has been a coping skill for them, we've just added another layer of stress and trauma. Absolutely. So we do need to be cautious about that. You know, there's one other piece of getting people the treatment that they need that I think we don't talk about enough and it's really important, which is their readiness for change. And that needs to also be factored in when we're doing some harm reduction approaches and we're looking at triaging cases and saying, this is an option for this person, maybe we could get them into that, is are they ready for change? And that's where the power of connecting them to peers, whether that's a family support provider, we have those at DMH, we have certified peer specialists, which are, you know, 
adults with lived experience with substance use and mental illness who work with other adults to engage them in treatment and really get them ready for the work that they need to do. So it's the engagement component. It's not just here's the resources we want to refer you, but it's it's really trying to help people along so that they're ready to make the changes and that treatment will work better for them. Because how many times have you referred, the team has referred someone and that person wasn't ready for it, so they didn't use it. And then the team gets disappointed because that case didn't turn out the way that you were hoping. And so I think that, that uh, client readiness is also a part of the problem that we run into that we need to try to figure out how do we talk about that in meaningful ways? How do we help people get ready for treatment so that when treatment's available to them, they'll actually use it? Well, I think it also it also brings us to the question of what is a referral? And, you know, and what is, and, and, and our connectedness with each other, with all the people providing the services, knowing each other and being, uh, you know, we're not just handing a person who is, you know, just, you know, just gone through, you know, losing their children and being arrested and whatever else has just happened to them and hand them a sheet of paper says, hey, contact these people. Their waiting list is only going to be six months, you know, uh, but instead knowing the people to, to to talk to, to send folks to, to, to do warm handoffs with each other, to, to follow up and be engaged uh, as a team uh, around these folks. It's a different, it's a totally, it's a totally different thing. So. Absolutely, and not just making sure that we're giving a good quality referral, a hand to hand, but the timing of referrals. So, you know, you just gave this example, all this chaos. Well, what trauma science shows us is that the whole left side of our brain goes offline when we're experiencing traumatic stress. That's the part of our brain that's responsible for memory, putting things in order, recall, logic, planning, follow through decision-making, all the things that we are wanting families to do when we give them a referral, their brain is not ready to do that. It may not be for a couple days. It may not be for a week or so, which is again why engagement and coming back to them and reviewing it again, when maybe they're feeling a little more calm, they can be a little more clear-minded. They're not functioning out of their survival brain where they cannot recall any of the stuff that you gave them anyway. So I think that's an important piece of it too, is the timing of when we refer and how often we come back to it to check in on it. Because that's just how trauma works in our brains. Sometimes we need to be prompted and nudged and remind a few times before we can just, uh, you know, before people will take what we have to offer them. You know, this conversation has been so interesting to hear because so, um, as the person who kind of sits on the outskirts, right? Like I'm not in the detailed work of children's division. I mostly just do the communicating work for them. Um, knowing the direction that they're headed and in, in this like pursuit of prevention um, and then hearing everything that you said today, Rachel, it's just really neat to me that like, it's, it's not all happening in this vacuum. You know, um, it's because, frankly, from what I've heard today, even if Children's Division builds in all of this prevention work, there's stuff that would be benefited from prevention work happening on your end first that would 
maybe limit us ever having contact with those those families you know um and so it's just really neat to see this like progression towards prevention as a state um and and not just not just in our little you know piece of the universe um and i i hope i didn't miss somebody say it but you you know earlier in the call we talked about poverty and how that impacts our work um and then you you spoke about the fatherhood piece. Well, I, I I remembered hearing a stat about this not that long ago, and it's connected. Um, the Federal Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency put out a stat that in 2021, children living with only their mothers were more than twice as likely to live in poverty than those living with only their fathers. So, and you were more likely to be... Um, if you were in a poverty situation, you were uh, more likely to be with a single parent. And so it, it just like, it all weaves together and it's just fascinating to me. Um, and and it, it's exciting to me that we're recognizing these connections and trying to put things in place to um, support those families. So it's more of a statement than like a question, but I, I just, uh, just wanted to have, throw that out there. That was a great statement, Ashton. We need to keep going upstream. Well, and Ashton, the great thing about Ashton is that she's she's an independent observer in a lot of ways. You know, she didn't she didn't come through the child welfare system like a lot of our folks did. Didn't come through the legal system like I did. Is just a person who is coming and seeing it, and that's why she asked, you know, such great questions and, and has such great insight because you know it it does go to part of our plan. You know, when we talk about the things we're going to do. Uh, as an agency doing this prevention, the truth is, is that the work on the ground is not what we have capacity to do. It's not. It's to whom can we send these people uh, to, to to do these things? So it's going to be folks at the Department of Mental Health. It's going to be at, at community, uh, you know, the, the the local mental health agencies, the the departments of health. I mean, we just had a conversation yesterday with the Department of Health and Senior Services. I mean, they're like, how can how can we help? What things can we do? And the answer is, everything you do will help us once we can get our people to you, uh, and have them know what it is. Uh, I mean, a yibble is just like a, just a, just a gift. So, and it really brings us to to sort of a final global question, uh, Rachel. So, so just sort of think about this: dreaming big. You know, what do you see for the future of? You know, children's division working with DMH, working with all these other people. What would you, if you had a magic wand and you could say, "We're gonna, we're gonna create this thing," what would it, what would it look like? Oh, you've asked the wrong question because I'm a big dreamer. Well, that's I'm asking the right question to the right person. So you just tell us what your big dream is. Well, I mean, I think we need to envision a Missouri being a trauma-informed state where your youth serving departments and organizations have a hub that are consistently coming together. Because the reality is, none of our departments alone can handle the prevention or the treatment or the problems, right? We are all connected to each other anyway, and we all need to be able to depend and rely on each other. So having some sort of hub that always consistently comes together to address the prevention, the intervention, look at the data, pull all of that together to show a snapshot of Missouri. I think 
we need to do that. We're all working so hard, but we're working hard in our own teams, sometimes with some good cross-departmental connections, sometimes not. If a person leaves, sometimes that connection leaves with them and nobody picks it back up. But I think really when we, well, if we committed to being a trauma-informed state and really tried to do something different for Missouri, we could have a hub of cross-departmental work together. I think we also need to have a statewide youth council. We're talking about young people being exposed to trauma, being parts of systems. We need to hear directly from them what their experience is because that can help us shape what it needs to look like in the future. Again, it's the power of peers. It's the power of people with the lived experience coming back to tell our systems how we can be doing it in a more trauma sensitive way. And them coming side by side along with us, not just us, the adults in the room serving the youth and trying to protect the youth, but really hearing from them what would have helped, what did help, what didn't help, and shaping it that way with their voice and choice as part of the conversation too. Um, we haven't had a lot of time to talk about the issue of traumatic stress on the workforce, but the reality is your job is stressful and my job is stressful. And it's really hard to maintain healthy workforces that are constantly exposed to trauma without intentional operationalized supports in place for them. So at, at uh, DMH, we partnered with Six, uh, seven other state departments to do the recent Show Me Challenge. And we won first place, so I'm excited about that. But that is the Mo V Tip, Missouri Vicarious Trauma Improvement Plan. And it is really designed to do three things for Missouri state departments. We're trying to pull together a cross departmental team that includes departments and divisions that have a lot of trauma exposure that their workforce is dealing with because of the services they deliver to Missouri citizens. That team is gonna help us put together a three to five year plan for Missouri so that we can establish a healthy workforce that can continue to do this work year in and year out because we're serving a lot of Missourians that have a lot of trauma and that residual impact, it gets to us and it's hard to keep healthy workforces. The second thing that we're going to try to do with MoVTIP is enhance the existing EAP services or employee assistance program services that are available to people who work in the state and really catalyst that conversation to all their contracted providers who also need to be accessing their EAPs. And then the third thing, which I'm really excited about, is helping departments develop peer teams. So, peer teams in the workforce is basically an employee with lived experience dealing with workplace trauma who gets trained to support other employees who are dealing with workplace trauma. And just like in the treatment world, in the employment world, it is very powerful for someone who gets how stressful it is to be able to connect to you after you've experienced a removal, an overdose death, uh, a horrible court case that just got worse and worse. Um, all the other things that many of your child welfare workers are walking into homes experiencing, uh, many behavioral health providers are experiencing it. And so this Movi tip team is really trying to take a very strategic and intentional look at the fact that helping professions are dealing with a lot of trauma, not just the trauma of the people we're serving, but the trauma of the people we employ. 
And in fact, many of them are drawn to the work because of personal trauma themselves anyway. And this just brings that back to the surface for them. So my big dream would be that, like I said, Missouri becomes a trauma-informed state. And we're doing that not just with our service delivery, but we're doing that with how we support our workforce. Because really, it's not sustainable for us to hire people to go into trauma day in and day out and expect them to be well and balanced and stay with us for many years. It's high burnout, it's high turnover, and then you lose momentum. So really trying to think about, are there ways we can set up teams that do critical incident stress management response, help people debrief, help them get access to the wellness and the mental health and substance use prevention that the workforce needs, right? Because <laughs> the workforce needs it too. I was just at a conference recently and they pulled out this really powerful slide that said 80% of people who die by suicide are of working age. So workforce is a cross-cutting place where you can do suicide prevention. And right. I thought about that, like, okay, you know, I'm in mental health, so I'm, I'm almost always focused outside of here's the client population that we serve. But really, when we think about the opportunity to support our staff around trauma so that they can support the people who are traumatized, I think that can be a game changer for Missouri. So you well, asked to dream big. Those are my big dreams. Those are those are those are outstanding big dreams, Rachel. And I think you're exactly right. I, I think the first our first task, you know, we've got to protect the children and, and do right. Well, that's all that's very important. But the fact is, is we can't do that if we're not taking care of our own folks. If our own folks are walking around traumatized and beaten down and and stressed out and burned out, they they can't they can't look out for kids. They can't help families. They can't do any of that any of that. And so you know, taking care of you know the encouragement to people listening here. If you're out there in children's, take care of yourself. You know, make sure you're okay, uh, and then you can work to make sure other people are okay. And uh, and we'll and we'll keep working on that together. And I love I love your big broad dream of a hub. I mean, I think it's exactly right. It's when we're all looking out for each other and we're and we're treating all these people like people and not like a case and not like a number. Uh, mm -hmm. And we're getting them to everything that the state of Missouri has for them and their own community has for them and what their family has for them that they need that can help them be better. I think it's a great vision, Rachel. I, I love your big dream. So awesome. dream, dream well, if people want to learn more, um, they can visit our dmh.mo.gov slash trauma site or we have a wellness page too. So that's dmh.mo.gov forward slash wellness. We have a lot of resources to help people really start thinking about, okay, if we wanted to do this in a more trauma sensitive way, how do we move in that direction? If we wanna support our workforce and really promote well being and operationalize well being, not make it, hey, remember to take care of yourself. It can't just be that. It needs right. to be part of how you actually shift your culture. So we have some resources available to folks if they want to visit our website. All right, I encourage everybody to do that. Uh, Danielle Ashton, any other any other questions for Rachel today? No, I think that's the best note we could end on right there. All right, that's really terrific. Well, you know, thank you for taking the time with us. We feel like uh, I'm excited about what the future is working with our two agencies together and how we're going to help the people of Missouri. Uh, we're going to we're going to get to your big dream, Rachel. You just keep watching. It's going to be good stuff. So, uh, so great. thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, it, 
Danielle and Ashton, thank you for being here for this. And uh, I want to thank everyone who listened. Uh, and uh, please uh, join us next time when we get together on the We Are Children's Division podcast. Thank you, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Listen to more episodes of this podcast or our newest podcast, The Call to Foster, wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help us reach and inspire more Missourians. Thanks for listening.